You're a fine-looking congregation this morning, and I think the church is fuller than it has been since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, it's, it's great to be together this morning. I want to thank uh, Donna and Ella for the music, Joanne Harder for arranging these flowers this morning, uh, and the tech team, Ian and Logan Hopkins, Ryan Robinson, Bob Dingman, um, and Greg and Betty, our coffee volunteers. Uh, for making the coffee, which will be served after the service. Church is definitely a team effort, eh? Um, well, in the midst of all that's going on in our world these days, uh, this can be one moment to stop, to rejoice, and to be glad. To let all of the sadness, the anxiety, and the suffering take a back seat just for a moment. We're all here together, we're alive, we're breathing, we're conscious. And it doesn't feel like a miracle, but it really is in a way. The miracle of life that we've neither earned nor created, it just is a complete gift. The plants and the trees outside are waking from their slumber. It wasn't long ago, they seemed to be dead but they're coming back to life. Life is such a miracle, so big and all-encompassing that we can't even really see it. It's too, it's too close to us. We swim in it like fish swim in the sea. Of course, we're so aware these days of all the troubles in the world. Um, we're bombarded with them, um, with the news every day. But Easter reminds us of a still deeper current in all of it. That there is life in the first place. And that it has a desire and a will, and a will that will never be extinguished. There is something that brought all of this into being in the first place, and that has continued its development for over billions of years now. And the same thing will see it to its fulfillment. The force of life is irrepressible. War, death, climate change may set it back for a bit, but it will not be defeated. This is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. The irrepressible power of life, the spirit of God, that transformed the death of Jesus, signaling for us all that our own mortal deaths will not be the end of the story. The forces of death will not have the final word. I know that the biblical story of the resurrection of Jesus is difficult for us to believe. We are scientifically minded people and there is no scientific explanation for such a thing. Many, of course, doubt the reality of the gospel account that Carrie read for us this morning, that Jesus' dead body was transformed into something new, another body, uh, sort of physical, but uh, less dense somehow. We're not the only ones who doubt or who have doubted that this could happen. 
I was struck again in the reading this morning that Mary Magdalene, the first one to the tomb, did not believe it either. She finds the tomb empty, and then she goes to Peter and John and says they've taken him, and we don't know where they've put him. Resurrection was not a possibility in her mind. Peter and John go, they see the empty tomb, and then they go back home. But Mary stays there weeping. And even when two strange beings appear, she still does not believe that Jesus could have been raised because such things do not happen. One doesn't need a science degree to know that. Everybody knows that. And so she says to those strange beings, they've taken him away. I don't know where they've put him. Then she turns and sees another person whom she presumes to be the gardener or the groundskeeper. And she says to him, if you're the one who've ta who's, who's taken his body, tell me where it is. I will look after it. And then he says, Mary. And she recognizes him. And her world is expanded. She begins to consider a new reality, a new dimension of life, something she could never have imagined. The resurrection of Jesus is not something easy to believe in with the mind alone. It probably needs to be experienced in some fashion in order to be believed. I was looking recently again at the autobiography of C.S. Lewis, uh, which describes his reluctant conversion to Christianity. He says in there, quote, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. We know that Professor Lewis was not an unintelligent or naive person. He taught English literature at Oxford and at Cambridge and had no bias whatsoever against science. And yet he was drawn throughout his life somehow by the risen Christ, by a divine presence, seemingly against his better judgment. His autobiography is called Surprised by Joy. And in it, he describes this experiential thread that runs throughout his life. The thread of being surprised by something, by joy, he calls it, he says it with a capital J, which is like it intrudes upon him from time to time on his normal way of seeing the world. Early in the book, he describes three childhood experiences with this strange joy, and they seem quite odd. And I want to quote uh, at length a little here, not too long, so you can see what I mean about these, the oddness of these experiences. He says, the first one is itself the memory of a memory. As I stood beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day, there suddenly arose in me without warning 
as if from a depth not of years but of centuries. The memory of that earlier morning at the old house when my brother had brought his toy garden into the nursery. It's difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. Milton's enormous bliss of Eden, giving the full ancient meaning to enormous, comes somewhere near it. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? Not certainly for a biscuit tin filled with moss, nor even, though that came into it from my own past. Before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone, the whole glimpse withdrawn, the world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. It had taken only a moment of time, and in a certain sense, everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. The second glimpse came through Squirrel Nutkin. I don't know if you've ever read that book. Um, through it only, though I loved all the Beatrix Potter books, but the rest of them were merely entertaining. It administered the shock. It was a trouble. It troubled me with what I can say only what I can only describe as the idea of autumn. It sounds fantastic to say that one can be enamored of a season, but that is something like what happened. And as before, the experience was one of intense desire. And one went back to the book not to gratify the desire, that was impossible, for how can you possess autumn, but to reawaken it. And in this experience also was, there was the same surprise and the same sense of incalculable importance. It was something quite different from ordinary life and even from ordinary pleasure something, as they would now say, in another dimension. The third glimpse, this is the final one, came through poetry. I had become fond of Longfellow's saga of King Olaf, fond of it in a casual, shallow way for its story and its vigorous rhythms. But then, and quite different from such pleasures, and like a voice from far more distant regions, there came a moment when I idly turned the pages of the book and found the unrhymed translation of Tegner's Drapa and read, I heard a voice that cried, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. I knew nothing about Balder, but instantly I was lifted into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described except that it is cold, spacious, severe, pale, and remote. And then, as in the other examples, found myself at the very same moment already falling out of that desire and wishing I were back in it. The reader who finds these three episodes of no interest need read this book no further. <laughs> For in a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. For those who are still disposed to proceed, I will only underline the quality common to these three experiences. It is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, 
which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and from pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and only one in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is the kind we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. Somehow this joy that he talks about speaks to me of resurrection, about the central mystery of our faith, about a larger life on a different plane. Lewis is describing an experience that goes beyond the bounds of our normal consciousness, an intense desire that is fleeting and nevertheless life-changing. It only takes an instant and it lingers for years. He describes it as an intense longing tinged with sadness and grief, but better than any other pleasure. It seems to be a desire for life or a, and to have a desire you have to, in a sense, already know, know what you're desiring in some sense, a desire for connection, for communion, for life at the deepest level of the soul. It's hard to explain, but for him it was very, very real. And of course, beyond the bounds of scientific discourse or proof. It was these fleeting and intense experiences of longing and belonging that drew him inexorably toward Christian faith, even though other parts of him, including his pride and his intellect, were rebelling at every turn. This seems resonant with Easter in many ways, a longing and a knowing, a joy that transcends but is not completely separate either from sadness and grief, a taste of something real yet combined with intellectual doubt. Such experiences have a flavor to them like a good aged wine uh, way beyond the simple sweetness of happiness or joy with a small j. There are undertones. There, are, there is complexity and depth. And I imagine that's what Mary tasted in that instant when Jesus called her by her name and then soon he was gone again. I think it's what Saul experienced on the road to Damascus when he fell down and lost his sight. I believe the experience is real. And I believe it's why that motley band of women and fishermen did not fade away. Logic would have it that they should have faded away. Their leader was dead. The Romans were firmly in charge. Their co-religionists were against them, but they didn't disappear. They maintained a joy in the midst of their troubles. They experienced 
a blessedness in the midst of their persecution. They kept on living and growing and expanding against all odds. And we shall as well. Amen.